let's just read um, 6, 8, all the way through 15 to kind of get kind of a kind of an intro to this great uh, masterful sermon that Stephen is going to give us here in Acts 7. So here we are, verse 8 of chapter 6. And Stephen, full of grace and of power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freemen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Exal... Exal- <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Exandrians, and those from Cilicia... I, I'm done now. And Asia rose up and disputed with Stephanus. Uh, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat on the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? And then, of course, we see verse 2 start with Stephen's kind of response. But quick, just a few, just a few comments, a few notes before we jump into Acts 7. Notice once again the great strength and spiritual power that Stephen has. It's, it's noted there in verse 8, right? He was full of grace and power and was doing great wonders and signs among the people. You see that in chapter 6, verse, verse 3, he was a man that was full of the Spirit and of wisdom, right? And now he's able to do uh, amazing signs and wonders. Why? Because he is an extension of the apostles' ministry. They laid their hands on him, and now he served kind of an, in an extension role. But notice, he was a tremendous man. He wasn't just like a quiet servant in the church. He was outspoken, and he was bold, and he was courageous, and matter of fact, he was so bold that these, these enemies, in verse 9, could not dispute with him. It says in verse 10, they could not withstand the wisdom that he had. Now, it's interesting to me that the, the people that were kind of against Stephen were Hellenists probably themselves from Alexandria. And if you read in Acts at all, you notice the, the continued problem of the early church seems to be Jews from uh, Asia. Uh, and here they are starting the whole problem out. But notice in verse 10, they could not withstand his wisdom. Now, this brings to mind something that we, we had Jesus tell the disciples. He told them in Luke 12, 12, that the Holy Spirit will teach you and give you wisdom, and you will be able to argue and debate, and nobody will be able to withstand you. Now, now, what's going on here? This is probably what's going on. This is an evidence of the Spirit's power in Stephen's life, that he was, uh, they were unable to debate him, really. That's really what it was. And, and, I'll, and I'll give you a little hint here. What was Stephen's wisdom? What was his power? Well, when we're going to read through this sermon that he gives, it is full of Scripture. 
And I conclude that the degree to which you are full of the Bible is the degree to which you are full of spirit-empowering material in your life. Do you want to be powerful? Do you want to be used in a spiritual sense, not in a worldly sense, worldly greatness, worldly strength, but in a spiritual sense that you're useful to God and you're a servant to the church? Your life needs to be full of the Word of God, and then it will be full of the power and the strength of the Spirit. And we see here, and then in verse 11, since they are not able to withstand him, the only option that's left to them is the same option that was left to the Jewish leaders who hated and got rid of Jesus. What did they have to do? They had to lie and produce a lie and to bring up false witnesses against Stephen to to entrap him and throw him in um, custody. And you see there in verse 7 is the accusation. Um, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we, we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs of Moses. And it's interesting here, you see in verse 1 of chapter 7, then we have this high priest figure kind of enters the scene. And I'll give you a little background, a little historical background here that's very interesting to me and will become very interesting by the end of this sermon. This high priest is the very same Caiaphas that kind of ruled over Jesus' trial. So we have the same priest that condemned Jesus to death, now at the trial of Stephen himself. Very interesting. Very interesting to me. And, and one more thing before we kind of jump into the sermon here. Their false witnesses that they bring up against Stephen are, 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 are very purposeful in the witness that they bring. They don't bring up issues that Jews don't care about. They, they, they bring up three pillars that the Jewish people held near and dear. Three pillars that they looked to, relied upon, and cherished, and said, we have peace, we have security, because these three pillars are in our life. And as long as we hold tight to these three pillars, nothing can happen to us. What were the three pillars of kind of the Jewish faith that these false witnesses kind of took advantage of? Here they are. Ready? They're the land, right? We're on God's promised land. Nothing can happen to us as long as we're in God's promised land. Number two, we have the law. Nothing can happen to us as long as we hold fast to the law. And number three, and it kind of alludes to it in this holy place, we have the temple. Nothing can happen to us when we have the temple of our God here. So these, these witnesses are actually employing a very sensitive, a sensitive topic for the Jewish people. This Stephen is a threat to everything that you hold near and dear. Get rid of him or else everything you love will be threatened. That's how false witnesses act. They know how to cut. And so um, for Stephen's sermon here, he's going to kind of address these three areas um, and he's also going to show them what the true spiritual threat is that they face. So you could kind of look at it like that. It's a three-point sermon by Stephen that is going to show them the true spiritual threat that they face. And the basic, the basic message that Stephen has for them is this. God is not with you because of where you are geographically or what you think you hold in your hands in the law or even what you think uh, you possess in the temple. God is with you 
based on how you respond to the servant he has sent. That is where true security comes from. And based on how you respond to the one, the messenger that he has sent, you have peace. You have security in your life. You don't have peace. You don't have security because of your, your, your location in life. Maybe some good things you're doing or some, some religious practices that you think you're holding to. You have security in your life because of how you respond to Jesus in your life. That's basically what Stephen is going to say. So first point, first point in his three-part sermon kind of addressing these three pillars of the, the Jewish faith is, number one, God's land, hey Abner, God's land is not the limit of his grace. Just write that down. God's land is not the limit of his grace. So you can say it another way. God is not limited to this geographical territory to show forth grace and to give rich blessing to people. God is not limited by land for his grace. Let's read the first 22 verses here. Stephen says in verse 2, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go to go into the land that I will show you. And he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, that is their brother, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and he rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all of his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he went out, he went out, uh, sorry, he sent out our fathers on their first visit, and on their second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father, and all of his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem, and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born. And he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up 
as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. All right, let's stop there for a moment. Stephen basically gives them kind of an overview, flash tour of Genesis through Exodus 2 about here. He's covering all of the story of the patriarchs. And notice what Stephen is emphasizing here. He is emphasizing how God's grace came to God's people outside of the land, right? Notice, notice these illustrations that he draws. First, there's the Abraham illustration. Abraham in three and four was called by God outside of the land of Israel, right? He was an object of God's grace. When, when Abraham was in a far country and was serving other gods, matter of fact, Joshua 24.2 says he served and worshipped other gods. God went to Abraham, called him from a distant land, and called him to follow him to the promised land. God's grace is not limited by land at all. And then in verse 5, you see that God gives Abraham promises. Well, he has no possessions of that land. And you, you see Abraham's faith there has that, that aspect of patience, doesn't it, that we talked about on Thursday night, right? He had nothing. He, he owned nothing, but he held to God's promises by faith. That is what faith is. And then, of course, Stephen uses the Joseph illustration. This is very interesting. God was not only with Joseph while he was in Egypt, but God was with Joseph when he was in a prison in Egypt. And emphasize that, right? God's presence, God's grace is not limited by distance, by darkness, by depth. God's grace goes anywhere and can save and deliver and set its love on anyone, regardless of where you are. That is that is the kind of illustration of Joseph. And this is kind of an, an, illus, uh, an ironic statement, I think, because... Because God's grace is as actively on and with Stephen while he's giving this message. He is clearly in trouble here. He is in captivity, so to speak, before these religious leaders. And God's grace is with him. And we know God's grace is with him because Luke has emphasized the point in Luke in Acts 16, 15, right? Everybody saw that his face was like the face of an angel. That is emphasizing the fact that this man seems to be like one who has been in the presence of God. It doesn't matter where you are or your circumstances, God's grace is not limited. And then, of course, we see an Israelite example in verse 17 here. God's promises draw near, we're told. God's promises were not only active while the people of Israel were in Egypt and in captivity, but they were also brought to completion well, the Israelites were in captivity in Egypt. God's promises were being fulfilled while Israel was outside of the land. They were growing into a nation, and that's where he sent Moses to call them by his name. And notice, notice how, notice how we, we, often, we often like to kind of reverse how God does things in our life, right? Oh, God probably saved me because I was very impressive and I keep all these rules and all these kinds of things. No, no, no. Go back through the history. Remember who you were when God saved you. This is the same story that Israel has. It's the same story that every Christian has. No, I was in slavery in Egypt, had no help, no hope. I didn't even know who God was. And God in his grace saw, knew, and sent a savior for me. That is our story. 
God doesn't save us because we're spectacular or in the right position. God saves us because of his grace. That's exactly what he did with the Israelites. The promises that he made to Abraham were brought to completion while Israel was in captivity. And then, of course, Stephen gives a, an example from Moses. And, of course, you see this in verse 20 a little bit. Uh, Pharaoh was the king in Egypt, and he was seeking to destroy um, people like Moses, young boys. But God's rule and grace extended even to the one that Pharaoh was trying to destroy, right? God's grace is not limited by political power, by geographical location. God's grace can reach anywhere. And of course, this is where Stephen's message transitions from talking about land to talking about the law, and particularly in talking about the law giver. And this is our next point here in, in Stephen's message. God's law was not an end to itself, you could say. Or you could say it like this. God's law was not the end of his purpose. It wasn't just God's purpose to give his people his law. His law had a, had a point to it. It was, it was pointing to something greater. Or we could say it was pointing to someone greater. The law was not a purpose and an end all to itself. The law was a means to an end. The law was a means to enjoying God's presence. And we say this sometimes about the Old Testament law. It was never conceived of as kind of a scheme to make you right before God, right? It wasn't like, hey, you sinners out there, just start obeying the law, and then you can be one of God's people. That's not how the law was conceived. Remember how Israel was born. They were in slavery and captivity. God saved them completely from his grace, and then God gave them the law. What is the law? The law is like sanctification. The law is like how to get close and stay close and enjoy the presence of God in your life. The law is a means to an end. It's not the end in and of itself. It's a means to knowing and loving and being with God. It's a means to sanctification. Uh, but they misunderstood Moses, and they misunderstood Moses' point. And so Stephen here is going to kind of give them kind of a reminder of who Moses was and the message that Moses wrote about and who Moses pointed to. To, to say it shortly, uh, Moses pointed to Jesus. Uh, Moses prepares you for Jesus. If you know Moses, you are ready to love Jesus more. The more you love Moses, the more you will love Jesus. The Old Testament gets you ready for Jesus. It's like this. If you're reading through all of the Old Testament, you should get to the end of the Old Testament, start reading the New, be introduced to Jesus, and you're like, yep, this is who I have known all of these years, and I am so excited to know him. I've been waiting for him, and he is here. Moses, the whole Testament is meant to point you and prepare you for the coming of Jesus. How does Moses do this? Well, let me give you a little, little like three points that kind of Stephen brings us through for Moses. First off, Moses was, we'll say in the, in the words of Hebrews 3, Moses was a servant in the house of a son. Moses was the servant, the clear servant. He was not the son himself to which he was pointing to. Moses was an imperfect man. 
but he called people to look towards and hope in a coming perfect man. Does that sound familiar? Kind of. Uh, Let's read verse 23. Uh, When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart, this is Moses, to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. You ever see Jesus do that? Never mind. That's I thought. Uh, he supposed, look at another interesting word there, supposed. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why, are you, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside and saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. Notice, just side side note, notice once again, uh, God's holiness is not limited to a certain space, right? Because God appears to Moses in the Sinai wilderness, right? Just a side note. But, But here I want you to see something. To see something. Notice the words. I kind of tease this a little bit. Verse 23, it came into his heart to visit his brothers. Verse 25, he supposed. Now, maybe I'm kind of drawing, drawing a few conclusions here based on something that I'm thinking. But it seems to me like Moses is not painted in the greatest light here, right? This is Moses kind of taking his own initiative. Hey, I think it would be a good idea if I went over there and helped these guys stop this fighting. Or I think it would be a good idea for me if I just kind of went out to my brothers and, and watched them. Hey, I think God might have me here in a position here in Egypt where he wants to use me. Now, there might have been truth to that. Moses might actually have been told that he was one um, chosen by God to save his people. But the attitude that we see here in Moses is what I would consider not as commendable as you'd want it to be. It's almost as if Stephen is intentionally kind of downplaying Moses a little bit. Like Moses had some mistakes, had some flaws. Um, he's not as glorious. He's not as glorious of a, of a ruler and redeemer as perhaps another ruler and redeemer you guys have heard of recently. And then in 30 through 34, uh, only after he meets with God on the holy mountain and is given God's message to his people, does he actually have authority? Only after meeting with God and being a recipient of God's holy law does he actually have a message to bring to God's people. Only after being given God's 
authority and God's power does he actually have power over the Egyptians. Uh, Moses did great things, but he was great because he received something from God. Not because he was great in and of himself. He was used. He was a servant in all of God's house and not the son. I love how Hebrews 3 uh, 1 through 5 says, and particularly verse 5 of Hebrews 3, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Now Stephen hasn't mentioned Christ yet, but you got to wonder, is he starting to hint at Jesus just a little? And then the hints become more obvious as you get into verse 35 all the way down through 41. Not only is Moses just a servant in the house, but we also see Moses was the picture of a true and better Moses. We sang that song all last weekend, so let's make use of it. Moses was just a picture of a better one to come, a better prophet to come, in fact. And Moses was this picture completely throughout his life. Verse 35, notice or try to pay attention to the kind of language that's used while I read through this passage and say, does this remind me of someone else? Do, do I think perhaps Stephen is trying to remind me of someone else through the picture of Moses that he paints? Notice how many times he says, this man also. Verse 35, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge, this man God sent as both ruler and redeemer. By the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush, this man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him in Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles uh, to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they returned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idols and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. Uh, notice, notice who these people refused to obey. Once again, Stephen reminds us of their, their casting out of Moses, refusing to obey Moses yet again. Who did they refuse to obey? Verse 35 says, they refused to obey one who was sent to rule and redeem them. Remind you of anybody? They refused to obey, in verse 36, one who was empowered to show God's wonders to them. They refused to obey, in verse 38, one who delivered God's word to them. Oracles, the oracles of God through angels. Matter of fact, that's kind of interesting, right? Moses, once again, is a little bit downplayed here, right? He needed angels to receive oracles from God. He wasn't the word. He was just the receiver of the word, but that's a side note. Notice, Moses is 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 prominently a picture of someone to come, someone greater, a true and better Moses who wouldn't have any of Moses' failures and would be only the increase of all of his strength. 
And how did the people of Israel respond to that Moses, the old Moses? We see that in verse 39. They refused to obey him. And, and notice the wording there in verse 40. How interesting is that? Or verse 39. They refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. Why? Because their hearts were still in Egypt. That's why you, that's why you disregard Jesus, actually. Because your hearts are still serving other idols. And notice, when you thrust aside Jesus, all that's left to you is idols. It's because there's idols in your heart. And all that's left to you is more and more idols. In fact, verse 42 says, But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Rethan, and the images that you made to worship, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Now, of course, he's, he's swooping through a large chunk of Israelite history, but just showing, look at that, the idolatry of the heart, that, that, that inner heart com, um, com, component in you to make and create idols just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It's never satisfied with idols, and this will just lead to more and more idols, the people rejected, refused to obey Moses because they were worshiping a different God in their heart. What was the purpose of Moses? What was the purpose of the law? I'll say it was meant to point and to prepare you for the one who was coming. It was meant to prepare your heart saying, I need a better Moses, a better redeemer, a better ruler, a better savior. Someone who can deliver me, not just from physical captivity, but from spiritual captivity of the heart. I need someone who can rescue me from the idolatry that is in me that wants to return to slavery. He is Christ's servant. He is Christ's picture. And notice the point that Stephen is making here to this group of men that were the very men that crucified Christ what did he say to them? Your rejection of Jesus is because you never had Moses, right? You treated Jesus the same way that they treated Moses. And that's a sign that you never loved and believed Moses. Moses is a picture and you guys have rejected and cast aside and refused to believe the very one to whom Moses was pointing you to. You never knew God at all. To say it in the words of John in John 5, to believe Moses is to believe instantly in Jesus. John 5, 45 through 47 says this. Uh, Jesus says this to these religious leaders. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father there is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me, but you do not believe his writings. How can you believe my writings? To say it like this, guys, if you do not rejoice, love, and believe in the person of Jesus Christ, it is not the God of the Bible that you are choosing above Christ. It is an idol 
The God of the Bible is Jesus. If you miss out on Jesus, you miss out on the God of the Bible. And Moses will be the one that condemns you of this. You can't have the Old Testament God and not the New Testament God. Um, Jesus is the one who we see all throughout. So that's, that's number two. Let's go, let's go now to kind of his rebuke of their infatuation sinfully with the temple. Number three, God's temple is not the guarantee of your security. God's temple is not the guarantee of your security. Remember, the temple was considered a sacred space, and it was a sacred space uh, in, in the Old Testament um, law was clearly dedicated to the worship of God, and you needed to take that very seriously. But they had turned it into something that it was not. They had turned it into um, an opportunity for their own greed. They had turned it into just an opportunity for their own religious uh, show, right? It was not meant to serve and worship God. It was meant to praise and puff up themselves. You remember the Pharisee at the temple praying, God, I thank you that I am not like everybody else. That's what the temple was. It was an opportunity to show off their religion. And now he is going to tell them, Steve is going to tell them, hey, God's temple is not a guarantee of your security. Number, uh, let's, let's read, let's read uh, 44, but remember 42 and 43. Let's read 44 all the way to the end of his message. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Josiah when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all of these things? Verse 51, You stiff-necked people! uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous ones, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now notice what he has to say here about the the temple just on its on its own, right? Number one, hey, the temple didn't secure you before. Verse 43, right? You were brought into exile because of your idolatry that you brought into this very temple. And verse 44 would tell us the temple is a copy of a heavenly one. And verse 48 through 50, the, the earthly temple is not enough to contain God. God is too... Great God is omnipresent. God cannot be contained by any human building. So basically he's saying this, hey, the fullness of God's presence isn't secured by land. The fullness of God's presence and blessing isn't secured by some external keeping of God's law. The fullness of God's security and presence and blessing 
isn't guaranteed to you because you have God's temple. No, the fullness of God's presence and God's blessing and his grace is to you if you receive the one whom he has sent. And you are stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart. That's a way of saying you are Gentile-like in your relationship with God. You are acting like you've never even read about this God of the Old Testament. You are stiff-necked. As your fathers did to Moses, so you have done to Jesus. You have rejected the one whom all the law and the prophets have pointed you to. You have no security. You have no grace. You have no promise of blessing. You have no security. That's how he leaves them. Basically, to say it like this, the guy who's on trial suddenly reveals that he is the prosecuting attorney. He has no problem being condemned. It is more important that he is faithful to the message of Jesus. And it is most important that you are responding to the message that the whole entire Bible has pointed you to as well, right? It says, it says in John chapter 8 that Abraham rejoiced to see the day of Jesus. But do you remain? It says of Moses that he wrote of Jesus, but do you rebel? It says of the temple that it reveals the work of Jesus for sinners. But you just keep repeating the same old practices that made you feel special before. That is Stephen's sermon that, by the way, most likely is cut short. I'm sure he had a great conclusion that we are not given. Why are we not given it? Because verse 54 tells us, when they heard these things, they were enraged and ground their teeth at him. The word enraged enraged is that same word that we saw back in chapter 5, verse 33. And it talks about being cut to the quick, being split open. The deepest part of you is touched. It refers to vehement, violent, reactive um, anger. Then, of course, what happens? Verse 55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Notice a few really interesting things. First, Luke, the narrator, tells you, what Stephen is about to see in verse 55. And then Stephen tells you what he sees in verse uh, 56. And then in verse 57, we're told how everybody responds to what Stephen said that he saw, that Luke told you that he saw. Do you think what Stephen saw might be kind of important? It's like repeated three times. What, what, what exactly did he see? Whatever it was, it was extremely important. And it's important for us to know And I would say it's important for you to know, if you want to increase in boldness for the cause of Jesus, what did Stephen see? Well, first off, we see he saw Jesus as the Son of Man. A very interesting title that you probably recognize so much that it's not significant to you. But did you know that the Son of Man was a title that only Jesus used about himself? 
Matter of fact, in the New Testament, there is no other place where Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man outside of Jesus himself. So this is the only person other than Jesus to refer to Jesus as the Son of Man. And of course, you also see that Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. That's kind of interesting language because it sounds a little bit like Psalm uh, 110 verse 1 where it says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. But Jesus is always referred to as seated at the right hand of the glory of God. So we have this interesting idea of Jesus being referred to as the Son of Man and also standing at the right hand of the glory of God. We could also say this, that Stephen here is kind of joining an Old Testament picture of Jesus together. He is joining a picture of Jesus that we get all throughout, like Psalm 110, verse 1, where Jesus is at the right hand of God, with Daniel 7.13, where Jesus where, where the Messiah is spoken of as the Son of Man before the Ancient of Days. As a matter of fact, let's just read it really quick. Daniel 7.13 says this, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, remember those, those are interesting, um, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples... Nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This is an Old Testament picture of kind of the glorious coronation of Jesus, receiving his kingdom. And notice his kingdom is not just in one little land. It is everlasting, and it is complete, encompassing of the entire earth, all peoples, all nations, all languages. This is the glory that Jesus enjoys. And he's standing also before the Ancient of Days. We could say it this way. Stephen is seeing a picture of the rightful Messiah being given dominion, authority, and glory over all peoples. That's encouraging when you're standing before a council of a nation of people that are currently being um, um, dominated by another nation that will soon pass away itself. These, these rulers, these authorities that are causing me such problems are nothing, are a drop in the bucket compared to the one who I serve, who is currently standing at the right hand of God, watching everything that is going on, right? That is a that is actually the cause of boldness in the church, right? Because they believed this was true about Jesus. You are not just some guy who lived and who died. You are the God eternal who has received kingdom authority, power in heaven, and is waiting to return to receive us and to reveal your glory, your majesty to the nations. We don't have anything to fear from any nation, from any people, from any king, from any dominion. You are over it all. You have received it all from the ancient of days. I don't have to be afraid of anyone, because you are standing. And by the way, this is also, interestingly enough, uh, the picture of Jesus that kind of were his last words that he shared with Caiaphas and the priests. He said, I am that man. And the next time you see me, it's because I am going to be looking like this. That's what Jesus said. Luke twenty-two sixty-nine. But from now on, Jesus says, the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of 
the Lord of uh, uh, right hand of the power of God. Mark fourteen sixty two says this: I am He, Jesus says, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power in the and coming with the clouds. What did Stephen see? This is all Stephen saw. He saw a Jesus who sees everything. To stand means you are standing in judgment. You're in a courtroom situation and you are standing in judgment. So kind of like this. Well, Stephen is seeing a courtroom scene around him. He is seeing a greater, more important courtroom scene above. And Jesus is standing in judgment. He's also seeing a Jesus who is ready to judge. I see everything that they are doing to you and I will answer them. And he is also seeing a Jesus who is ready to receive him as well. That's what you have when you have Jesus. You have a Jesus that sees everything, a Jesus that is ready to judge, and a Jesus that is ready to receive you as well. Jesus is saying, I have seen you, I have judged, I will judge, and I will also receive you into heaven. Now, what does this do for you as as a simple believer? Speaking about boldness for Jesus, it gives you a lot of different encouragements And now, of course, you probably won't see Jesus standing at the right hand of God, but you have something better than a vision of Jesus seated or standing at the right hand of God. You have his true, inspired, inerrant, and perfect word telling you this is where Jesus is right now. And and what, what should that knowledge produce in you? A similar response that Stephen had. Let's read. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. What do you have if you have Jesus? You have assurance of instant presence when you die, right? That's what Stephen had in verse 59, right? Lord, receive my spirit. You have assurance of his instant presence. You also have this strange thing. You have confidence in God's power. You have confidence in God's power. Look at what we are given here. We're given a little snapshot of God's power because who is one of the men who is casting stones or is a part of the casting of stones at Stephen? It is Saul himself, soon to be the sent one, the great, the greatest missionary that the church has ever seen. You have confidence in God that God can do anything. God can change anyone. I don't have to fear any man. And lastly, you have a surprising compassion. You have a surprising compassion on your enemies. Verse 60, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Stephen, while stones are flying at him, has compassion on his enemies. And if you've never been stoned, maybe you should just kind of think about how that would feel for a moment. It is not a pleasant experience. It is being pulverized to death. When I get hit in the head with anything, I instantly want to tear the head off of anything that's nearby me. This takes a tremendous amount of sanctification. But why can Stephen say this? It's because he thinks rightly about himself and about his God and about God's power and his life. That leads him to compassion. I love, once again, I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones handles this. He says the believer goes through a process of thought. 
that leads to compassion. First off, he says, was not I also at one point a reviler, an enemy of God? You're true about yourself. I was once an enemy of God. And then number two, the believer says, this behavior then really isn't that surprising. I used to be a hater of God. Matter of fact, Saul himself said this, right? I used to be the one throwing the stones. I'm not surprised by the way they treat me because I love Jesus. I used to be this exact same way. And then Martin Lloyd-Jones says, and this is, by the way, how you know something is really transformed in your heart. You begin to feel compassion for your enemies. I used to be like that. I used to be throwing the stones. I'm not surprised by their behavior. Oh, I feel sorry. I have compassion for them because they do not know Jesus. And this compassion, mind you, will lead you to praying like this. But that only comes from being full of the Spirit. And that only comes from being full of the knowledge of God and the way he has knowledge of you, right? That leads to confidence, to assurance, but also compassion. What a, what amazing, what amazing thought. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I thank you for this day. I pray that we would all be stronger um, in our faith and bolder in our witness and, and deeper in our compassion. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.